Welcome back to another episode of the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg, and David French, all exhausted after our two-day What's Next event extravaganza. We have the recorded sessions up at whatsnextevent.com. And even so, even though we just spent the last two days talking nonstop to each other, we've got lots more to cover, more news. So we're going to start with the Pentagon We're going to talk about the future of the Republican Party again, because there is more. Then we're going to talk about vote fraud, and we're going to talk about the media, hypocrisy, and, you know, all the stuff that's going on this week. Plus, a little great man theory of history indulgence at the end. Steve has some terrible, terrible takes to share with you. Let's dive right in. Steve, news coming out of the Pentagon yesterday and today. Quite a bit of news coming out of the Pentagon uh, in the last 48 hours. You've seen the Secretary of Defense removed from his position, replaced um, by an interim for the, the final 70 days of the Trump administration. You've seen the head of policy at the Pentagon, the head of intelligence at the Pentagon, also removed the chief of staff to the secretary, also removed um, and replaced by uh, what I think can accurately be described Trump loyalists. Um, needless to say, in national security world, this is raising, I would say, a lot of questions, also a lot of alarms. People are, are worried about it. There are a variety of um, theories as to why this is happening, but it's unclear uh, exactly what the correct theory is. I mean, there are basically four. Uh, the first that the president is putting in his top um, lo- national security loyalists, two two people um, who used to work for Congressman Devin Nunes, uh, one at the Pentagon, the other as the top lawyer at the National Security Agency, um, having something to do with uh, with the, their Russia, their internal Trump administration pushback on the claims of Russia collusion and. Uh, the Mueller report. The second that this is just Donald Trump peak, he wants to fire people he doesn't like, and he needs to fill the slots with somebody. The third is that they're actually prepping for a second term. And I um, communicated with a um, longtime Trump advisor who said, that's what we're doing. Um, And then fourth, and most worrisome that this, that this has something to do with a potential escalation uh, with respect to Iran, as a, a number of the people who have been put into these senior positions are are Iran hawks. Um, as I say, we we don't know exactly what's happening, but it's clear that uh, you know both uniformed military leaders, national security folks, both inside and outside of the administration, are worried about what this potentially could mean. Um, and there are persistent, I'd say they're stronger than rumors, or we probably wouldn't even discuss them here. Um, but persistent concerns that there will be additional, uh, dismissals, uh, potentially including combatant commanders, uniform military leaders, um, the head of the FBI and the head of the CIA. So all of that, um, having taken place really in the last 
48, 72 hours. Uh, let me turn to you, David, with my question. Do any of those four explanations of what this is about make sense to you or sound more likely than the others? Well, I've been doing some of my own digging, uh, Steve, and there's a lot of puzzlement um, because the the moves only really make sense in the context of planning for a second term. Sort of there's a a routine kind of turnover that happens at the end of a presidential term and start of another presidential term. So they only make sense in that context with the exception. And also you're elevating a lot of people who are known to be sort of Trump cronies. Um, and but at the same time, I'm not getting any whiff of, and, and, and hopefully I wouldn't, because if there was some sort of impending military action, the last person who should know about it is a, uh, is a dispatch editor in Franklin, Tennessee. <laughs> but I'm not getting uh, any whiff of sort of anything like imminent military action. Uh, moreover, these changes at the top of these the civilian positions at the top really wouldn't impact, uh, you know, if an order is given, an order is given, and that's really going to be carried about uh, carried out by the uniformed military. Um, I've even heard some speculation as, is this something kind of a last minute gift resume patter um, to some very loyal Trump supporters? Um, and And in fact, that seems to be a common bit of speculation in addition to sort of the, the Russia stuff. Um, but it really, a lot of folks are just stumped by this. Um, I don't think it's something to be alarmed about regarding readiness. Um, you know, these guys uh, are really not that material to on, on a day-to-day -day readiness basis, that they're much more sort of shapers of longer-term policy, and there is no really longer-term policy for them to shape for the next couple of months. So, um, I, you know, <laughs> at some point you just kind of throw your hands up and say, I don't like it. It doesn't seem stabilizing. I can't quite figure it out. Jonah, um, you know, the person that I communicated with said, this is just simply planning for the, the second term. Um, yesterday in a press conference at the state department, secretary of state, Mike Pompeo was asked about what his department is doing to help prepare for a transition. I think the reporter plainly meant the transition to a Biden administration because president elect Biden has won the election and has the most votes. Um, Pompeo sort of laughed and said, yeah, we're preparing for a second Trump administration. Uh, your thoughts on that and whether or not, uh, this second term planning is is the explanation for what we've seen at the Pentagon. Um, yeah. So as I think I mentioned on the what's next event recap, and I know I said it on Twitter and I know I shouted it out my window like Howard Beale in network. Um, even if the Pompeo comment was intended as a joke, that doesn't let the guy off the hook because. It was clear, you know, there's, you know, remember how Yasser Arafat would always say one thing in English and another thing in Arabic or how Jon Stewart, when he was on The Daily Show, would get polemically hyper-partisan. And then the second he, anyone criticized him or took him seriously, he would put the clown nose back on and said, hey, yo, I'm just <laughs> a jokester, that kind of thing. Pompeo is, was doing that. 
right? He was doing a mixture of those two things. He was Trump speaking and with his little grin, um, trying to pass it off to the normies as a joke. And we saw this morning that Trump, or late last night, I can't remember because time is a flat circle now, uh, Trump had tweeted out uh, a quote, Pompeo's quote, saying that, and said, see, this is why he was first in his class at West Point. Trump wanted to hear something like that. Trump wanted to repeat something like that. Even if Trump was in on the joke, he thinks his followers aren't, and he wants them to be to think that. And what is so wildly, recklessly irresponsible is around the world, people hear that from the Secretary of State, who's supposed to be one of the few cabinet officials who's supposed to stay out of partisan politics, and they interpret that as something pretty serious and sinister, even if it was intended as a joke. That's the line. It's sort of like Al Haig's I'm in charge here comment. This is, I think, what Pompeo is going to be remembered for. And there is no defense of it. It was just simply outrageous. Um, That said, I have a hard time buying that this has anything to do with prepping for the second administration. Um, It may be that these guys were told that's what you're supposed to say when asked. Um, It may be that some of these guys believe that's the case because they're Kool-Aid drinkers. Um, But if you were actually prepping for the second administration, you would make changes at all sorts of places. And right now we haven't seen those. Um, So I, I don't know what's going on either ignatius has david ignatius of the washington post thinks that this is about protecting gina haspel and protecting sources and methods for all sorts of intel stuff um sounds like that's part of it um but much like the pompeo joke this just represents the reckless disregard of this administration for the decorum that you're supposed to show during the transition of power from one party to another in the United States of America. And even if there are defensible arguments behind some of this stuff, it still shows a cavalier attitude about how this is going to be perceived around the world, perceived by Americans. And um, if it was utterly harmless, there would be more transparency about what the intention is here. But they're letting people let, letting people's imaginations run wild on purpose. Yeah, Sarah, is this just more sort of mainstream media Trump skeptic overreaction to silly sort of moving around pawns on the chessboard that doesn't really have any significance? Yeah, I think a lot of it is actually. So I think that, um, it, it, how do I phrase this? Um, if this weren't the Trump administration, yeah, this would be kind of weird, but it is. <laughs> and we've seen three and a half plus years of this. This isn't fundamentally different than any of that. Um, the most of the people on that list are sort of part of this little internal cabal, uh, and they're all close with each other. And yeah, they're. Um, I, I am like zero surprised that they've now all found themselves together again uh, at the Department of Defense um, with sort of high-sounding titles with not much time left on the clock. I think it's as simple as that. And I think that they love it when the media then freaks out about it. Um, and as David said, you know, the, the actual power to do things is pretty limited in this short of time. Those are all sort of larger policy roles. Uh, and when you go into a large organization like the Pentagon, 
your ability to move those levers of power is so limited by your lack of understanding of the bureaucracy, not bureaucracy in the pejorative sense, like the bureaucracy in the, you know, how large organizations function and how to move large organizations. Um, it's why, you know, this, they couldn't possibly get a lot done in six weeks or eight weeks, whatever it is. Um, so, you know, I think that folks in the Trump administration like to see media wring their hands over what could this possibly mean? Um, and, you know, sit back and, and chuckle about that. So, you know, would you change your, would you change your mind about that if they started actually relieving military officers of their command and yes, you'd still feel that way? No, no, no. I, no, I would change my mind. Okay. Yeah. I think that Jonah, I think that that's a, I think that's a much, that's a much more serious issue. You know, a, a actual political relief of a combatant commander, a uniform combatant commander, is something usually only done after scandal or after poor performance on the battlefield. And but not after you've just lost an election and refused to concede? Not, not after you've just lost an election. <laughs> and maybe you think the guy wasn't sufficiently ready to deploy the, you know, 101st Airborne um, into the streets of New York. Um, yeah, I mean, that would be so totally different. What this is and why I say it's not that different than the last three and a half years is in every administration, you know, you sort of, the joke is you start with the A team and then you kind of like move down the teams and other people have pointed this out. Um, I think Jonathan Swan and Axios had something kind of funny about it a few months ago that like they quickly moved into the J team. Um, (laughs) And, and so this is just more of that. It just happens to come after the election. And so people are speculating about it. But like this happened, you know, throughout every, uh, you know, cabinet agency in the last year. It's just, it's DOD and it's happened after the election and there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. But yeah, Jonah, look, 100%. If they start moving combatant commanders, this is a different ball game. I am totally wrong. What if they start violating your Third Amendment rights? <laughs> they will not be quartering <laughs> at my house. <laughs> I think the brisket wouldn't. The brisket would not be casual about that. No, yeah, David. That is, David, admit it. You've wanted to argue a Third Amendment case your entire finally. life. Finally, my whole life. My whole finally. life. I've wanted it. <laughs> so I, I, I guess I think uh, I think um, I, I'm sort of in between the 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 true alarmists that this means that they're necessarily preparing for a strike on Iran or something and the dismissive types, Sarah included. I think it's definitely, it is, it is different than just replacing people at cabinet agencies. It's after the election. There's 70 days left. These are, as David points out, the president's cronies. It happened at the the department of defense. It also happened as I mentioned, Michael Ellis, an attorney for Devin Nunes, went to become the top lawyer at the National Security Agency, um, keeper of many, many of our secrets. Um, so it's odd. Maybe, I mean, the best case scenario is this is just one more sort of petty troll on the way out the door. And they love to see people get up in arms over things that aren't really alarming. But I take my cues from the folks uh, in the building at, at the senior levels of the building. And if they're alarmed, I'm alarmed. And it's very clear that they're alarmed. I think there is a red line with combatant commanders. I think you, you all are right. If, if that happens, I would expect to see um, 
hawks in Congress, both in the Senate and in the House, immediately come out and condemn the move and uh, raise lots of very difficult and pointed questions and sort of abandon the president on this. And maybe maybe that would lead to an abandonment on, on some other stuff. Jonah, we just spent two glorious days for our What's Next event talking about the future of the two parties uh, and in particular lots on the future of the Republican Party. You have some thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's, a, you know, there's, there's um, uh, so much thumb sucking going on here that everyone's uh, opposable thumbs are now pruned. Uh, because of this idea of whether or not the Republican Party is going to be a Trumpy party. How long is it going to be a Trumpy party? What does it mean to be a Trumpy party? What is Trumpism? How many angels sit on the head of a pin? Yada, yada, yada. Wall Street Journal has this uh, piece out today basically asking this question. And um, and I think that sort of the, the interesting quote that got a lot of attention is from Tom Cotton, who really just, just devastates a straw man um, when he <laughs> says uh, that uh, people who think we can just go back to the same agenda that we had five years ago um, are kidding themselves. Uh, we now have to do blah, 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 blah. And it's more of this, and Rubio's in there too, multi-ethnic, working class party, workers party, yada, yada, yada. Um, I typically don't love workers parties as a banner in American history, but the, the straw man part of it, which I guess I'll put in the form of a question for those of you, I'll, I'll put this first to Sarah. Um, Sarah, you were, uh, you were on the front lines of political campaigns for a long time before you, uh, decided to, I don't know, jump up or jump down to our <laughs> petty pundit class. Um, in all of that time, have you ever heard from ink-stained wretches like me or, or Steve or David or from lawyers like David or from think tank eggheads, anyone for, who believed in that agenda from, say, five years ago, um, how many of them said, yes, what we're really going to do is stick it to the working man? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, what, what, what does it mean for the Republican Party to become a, worker, worker, uh, a worker's party um, that would change the political dynamics of how it runs, how it messages, all of that. I mean, what, what does that mean to you? And is that, would that make it a Trumpy party? Um, uh, yes and yes-ish. So I think that there was a lot of talk circa 2012 about um, the real problem with the Republican Party, this was all sort of in the autopsy, was a messaging problem, right? We're just not landing our policies in people's lives and explaining to them how it will help them. And I think that is, and I've heard both parties say that, by the way, every time someone loses, they're like, we, it was just a messaging problem. We didn't explain how our policies would help people. And I think it is so um, uh, pedantic and condescending the way people say that as if your voters were just too dumb to understand how great your policies were. No, in fact, a lot of them understood exactly what your policies were and they didn't think that they were particularly helpful to their lives. So what I think you saw in 2016, I'm not saying some huge sweeping thing, 
but for a segment of voters was that his stuff on trade made a lot more sense to them than the 2012 Republican Party stuff on trade. They thought that China was taking them to the cleaners. They thought that the, uh, uh, you know, that these foreign governments who were subsidizing their goods and services were just at an unfair competition with ours. And yet you were hearing sort of think tanky egghead types trying to explain why actually free trade will be great for everyone because what you see will happen on this curve. And like, people were like, no, look, the, the price of uh, a barrel of corn just keeps going down. So I think there is something to that criticism. I do. Um, I obviously, no one, no one in, in any political party has ever run on the platform, screw the workers. But I think that a lot, I think both parties in 2012 weren't really running on a platform um, aimed at them either. Okay, so a couple things. Uh, one, <laughs> you said subsidizing, which I love, which sounds like the federal government offsets the price of your appetizers. Um, <laughs> and uh, two, That's actually big government I could get into, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> two, somewhere far in the distance, uh, our own Scott Lincecum, like, dropped his fork as he heard someone on the dispatch team not only disparaging trade, neoliberalism, but charts. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure I can protect you. That's all I'm saying. Um, I am not disparaging that. What I'm saying is that voters, uh, there are some voters who didn't like that part of the Republican platform. And then to say that there are no members of the conservative ilk who want to go back to that, I think that's disingenuous too. Of course there are. There are people who want to go back to a free trade part of conservatism and there are people who don't. And I think that's a fair fight to have. And yes, is it a little bit of a straw man? But that's man? not what Cotton says. That's I, not what Cotton says, right. right? So it's very different. Steve, as I you said like to me last to night, trade. if you had let me finish my point. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> it's on. Um, yes, the way Cotton phrased it was, you know, silly and disingenuous perhaps. But I think that that gets to the larger point of what he meant. You know, he's, he's of course portraying the side he doesn't agree with as a caricature, and that's the caricature. Steve, should we take Tom Cotton seriously or literally? Yeah, I mean, look, Tom's a, Tom's a smart guy. He's he's made very clear everything he's done with his both his, his rhetoric and his action that he wants to be seen as sort of the heir to the, you know, the Trumpism without Trump um, arguments. And that's that's you know, certainly a, that's a, that's going to be a crowded lane. But if anybody can can do it, Tom Cotton can probably do it. I take exception to the way that he that the way that he sets it up, though. I mean, I think, Jonah, your introduction was exactly right. It's a total straw man. Literally, like literally tell me one Republican who's saying we need to go back to the, the where things were five years ago and just ignore everything that's happened in between. But you just nobody said is, you want to go back to the other trade argument. policies, to the previous trade policies. Sure. I would make an argument for free trade. That does not mean I want to go back and ignore everything that's happened over the past five years or disregard all this stuff or run, have Republicans run strictly on that one, you know, on that core agenda. I think there's, look, ultimately you're going to find that there is this debate. Every, everybody understands that there will, 
that that the world that Republicans are running in, that conservative think tanky types are thinking in is different than the world as it was five years ago. And only a fool would fail to take into account all that's changed since then. So wait, Steve, can I ask you a question? Because this was from our, we didn't get to talk about our conversation with Governor Hogan afterward, but this has been like weighing on me since our conversation because I did not feel very satisfied with um, one of his answers to my question. What you or him, like how is the platform that he wants to run on different than Mitt Romney's in 2012. And I guess I would phrase it to you as how is the conservative movement that you want to create moving forward different than the conservative movement of 2012? um, Minus like what Hogan said, he's like, well, you know, I have a very different background than Mitt Romney. No doubt. A totally different person making the same arguments or how would the conservative movement look different to you, Steve, than it did in 2012 moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm not, I'm not sure what, you know, if Larry Hogan runs, what he'll, what he'll ultimately run on, but I suspect it'll be something that takes into account what we've seen in the past five years. And as he said to us would, you know, incorporate uh, a policy agenda designed to win over this sort of cross ethnic uh, multi or cross partisan uh, constituency uh, or, or, support base that he's built in Maryland. Uh, on the latter, I guess I'm more sympathetic to to the the messaging um, argument than you are. And I'm not surprised that a longtime Republican messenger doesn't think that the messengers were at fault. But I do think that that you you know Republicans have to do a heck of a lot better job than they've done in explaining why free trade in fact does work. Now you know, I think some people, maybe Tom Cotton will be among them, will look at what Donald Trump has done and say, boy, those arguments really appeal to the base. And they allow us to make a political case that will help us win over working class voters, just as Donald Trump has. I would argue if you look at the data as compiled or described or analyzed by Scott Lincecum and others, there's not a great case for the kinds of trade policies that President Trump has pursued. Now, the Republican Party is perfectly willing, Republican candidates are perfectly willing to say, you know what, it's worked politically, so we're sticking with it, and we're going to make a good argument about a bad policy. I would do the opposite. And, you know, I think we saw this a little bit in the in the conversation that I had with Brian's. Is the question going to be, I mean, I think everybody understands that that the the coalitions have shifted in the aftermath of of Donald Trump winning the presidency. The the question I think that's going to face a lot of these Republican 2024 candidates is, do you then shape your message to appeal to the new coalition? Or do you believe stuff? Do you argue things that you believe? And what concerns me most about this new conversation is you see this sort of creeping uh, walk away, or in some cases, sprinting away from basic limited government conservatism. Now, it can take a bunch of different forms, but I'm a but small I guess government I'm, conservative. I'm back to my I same question, Jonah. How well, David hasn't David hasn't even opined. I was going to say, is this a private fight, or can anyone get involved? <laughs> yeah. David, fine, David. What, Depends whose side you're on. 
I don't hear Steve or Jonah naming anything in their conservative platform that is different than five years ago. They want to message it differently. I hear that, but I don't hear any different policies. Oh, I have answers to that, but David should go first. So, David. <laughs> well, there's something that we haven't really talked about that much, and that's style. So that that's <laughs> how and is this that is different than that, messaging? <laughs> no, style is very different from messaging. Okay. Style is like what is your personality? What is your temperament? Like uh, Tom Cotton can message all he wants, but Tom Cotton also has a tendency to suck all the charisma out of a room. Um, and it's hard to change that. You know, you've got a couple of avatars of, of sort of pop working class populism in the Senate, Cotton, Holly. Um, but there's a, there's a, <laughs> let me put it the way, this goes back to something that Sarah said, talking about George W. Bush's appeal uh, versus John Kerry in 04 with Hispanic voters. George W. Bush versus Kerry, he had, a, he had a different demeanor. He had a different style. He had a different kind of swagger. He had a different kind of confidence. Um, these kinds of things, I think, m tend to matter a lot. Um, and so I think an avatar of, of conservatism going forward, sort of a more aimed at working class folks, you might see less a Tom Cotton and a Josh Hawley both Ivy League educated, both of them very online. They sort of have the ear of the very online populists. What about like a governor? Like, I'm not saying my own governor w w is it, but my governor, for example, in Tennessee, he's a conservative. He has, but he's also a former CEO of a construction company. And he has a, a, while he's carrying a conservative message that we recognize and that's been adopted and updated, he also has a natural way of relating to people that connects. And that's not just message. You can, you can tell it's sort of like Al Gore when, what was it, Naomi Wolf was saying, more earth tones. That's what I think <laughs> of when I think of messaging. But there's also just the person. And there's a, a way that a person just connects with people or doesn't connect with people. And I think that that is this one of these ineffable qualities that you, it's hard to put your finger on. I think that uh, and is, I think that that's an issue. I think that is all true. But I think what Cotton was saying to defend his point one last time, perhaps, is that there are people within the conservative movement who want to go back to the platform, the policy ideas of five years ago, and that he is disagreeing with that idea. And I'm trying to push you guys to tell me how the conservative movement in your view would look different than it did in 2012 from a policy standpoint. And I, I haven't okay. heard policy differences. Okay. All right. So, uh, this is, this is old hat on, 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 uh, my podcast, but, uh, one of my great and abiding abiding grievances about how we got Trump is that there were a bunch of people, they were, they were called the reformacons. Um, and not because they could become, you know, a car or a truck or something. <laughs> and people like Yuval Levin, Michael Strain, Jim Pethokoukas, a lot of a lot of my colleagues at AEI, Ramesh Panuru, they were making serious arguments, the way Yuval would put it, uh, for um, challenging today's problems um, with Reaganite principles rather than just replaying the Reagan playbook from 1982. And one of the reasons why this, this whole issue makes me very, very angry is that people like Mark Levin and the Wall Street Journal editor, editorial page heaped great scorn on these people for deviating from the orthodoxy yes. of the Church of the yep. True Reagan. 
And what uh, they said, no, 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 we got to just keep cutting the top marginal income tax rate, even though, as Ramesh has pointed out, to the point where like even shoeshine guys are tired of hearing him say it, that if you've cut the top marginal tax rate from 70 something to 30 something, you've gotten most of the benefit you're ever going to get from doing that. And cutting it another two or three points is a waste of political capital when there are all these other things that you could do about a family child tax credit. Uh, Michael Strain talks about subsidizing workers so they can move from places that have um, bad employment you know, uh, situations to places where they have good employment situations. Massive reform of state and local-based welfare systems that tend to keep people stuck because they don't want to lose all of the benefits that, that are tied to the local system. There are all of these things that the Reformicon types, which I was, I was only Reformicon curious rather than a full Reformicon, that they were advocating. And they got shut down by people who were saying, no, 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 purity, purity, purity. Then Trump comes along like Godzilla and smashes the entire existing framework of the Republican Party, how it talks, how it thinks, how it moves, whatever. And all of a sudden, the same people, the Rush Limbaugh, Mark Levin, Wall Street Journal guys, suddenly say, why are you so uptight about this Trump guy? He's attracting the white working class. He's attracting you know, the workers that we need for this party. And the response to that is, screw you. Um, these guys, We were trying to propose meaningful reforms that will actually change their lives so they didn't become radicalized and think that this giant orange Godzilla was the only answer to their problems. And, um, and the idea that somehow, like Larry Kudlow, who's a dear and wonderful friend and a nice guy, but so wrong about so much of this, and Steve Moore, who's not those things to me, uh, they used to call people at National Review racist for our immigration stuff and all of these kinds of things. And um, and then all of a sudden Trump comes along and they start defending his act because it's gaining traction. And so I think you could go back to five years ago, but not to the Mitt Romney program, but to the stuff that Yuval and Ramesh and, and Scott Winship were proposing that would be hugely beneficial. What I find, just as a sort of metaphysical thing, really funny, and I'm thinking about writing about this, about Tom Cotton's thing, is first of all, I have no idea what policies he's proposing that are substantive Bingo. that reflect the age of Trump. I think he's so full of crap about that. But more importantly, we've just had a president who, who, who gained traction for promising to make America great again like the 1950s, and everyone thought, oh, we can do that, but we can't go back to 2012? Right. I mean, like the time machine can only go back in 50 or 60 year increments, but not in five year increments. I mean, it's such a weird form of argumentation, like, oh, get with it. Times have changed, even though we got a president who wants to go back and talk about, you know, what General Pershing allegedly did during World War One or something, which he didn't do. Um, so I agree. It's a brave new world. We're an open field. It's going to be arguments all over the place. I just I don't concede the, the the substance or the messaging to Tom Cotton. I think he's desperate to be to get into the Trump thing. And this just gets the last point I'll get out of this. So much of Trump's appeal has zero, freaking zero to do with substance or policy. Exactly. It has to do with pro wrestling, Attitude. kayfabe, entertainment That's crap. So right. Attitude. And the yeah. idea that somehow Tom Cotton, who would it would be if he, he he is basically like the warrior version of Michael Dukakis reading Swedish agrarian form tracks on the beach, the idea that he is going to be an entertaining character is inconceivable to me. 
And he's going to, and he and Mike Pence and a bunch of these guys think they got the Trump vote locked in out of some sort of loyalty. And what that, a lot of that Trump vote wants is bread and circuses, um, and not turgid, nasty, anal retentive stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's 100% right. I mean, all right, we do have to move off what this is topic. So, it was so wrapping it up, wrapping it up. I, I get, I get, I get a final point. I okay. get a final point in here. What was Trumpism? It was Paul Ryan's tax cuts. What is Trumpism? It was Leonard Leo's judges. What is Trumpism? It was the failed trade war. What it, what is Trumpism? It was everything Trump did in the way Trump did it. He filled arenas, not because he wanted to do an expanded child tax credit. He, he filled arenas, not because he wanted to, to do um, you know, some of these other policies, which might be really good about, for example, I'm open to things like paid family leave. We need to really look at what California did. What's the California experience? Some of that stuff is not, doesn't have the effects maybe that people wanted it to have. For example, there's some evidence that paid family leave in California has resulted in diminished birth rates, not increased, you know, increased birth rates. So yeah, let's, let's look at these other policies, the reform of cons of advance, but let's not pretend Let's not pretend, please, that that was Trumpism. That was not Last Trumpism. Last word to Steve. It's also uh, ironic to me that, that the same people who are lamenting the sort of intellectual turgidity of the old conservative movement are now amplifying the themes that were found in, you know, this Ross Douthat and Ryan Slum book, The Grand New Party, How Republicans Can Win the Working Class. And what did that book grow out of? Well, an essay in the Weekly Standard in 2005. So maybe it wasn't the case that this was all, that this is all staled and warmed over. It also seems to me that the people who, you know, five years ago or five to 10 years ago or 20 years ago were making arguments about the benefits of free trade, the benefits of limited government, and are now making, in some cases, precisely the opposite arguments, or at least rationalizing the opposite arguments, like Larry Kudlow, like Steve Moore, like a lot of these political um, types and elected officials. The burden is on them to explain why they've changed their mind beyond just this might be appealing politically. Like, ha has something changed? Have, if we look at what Donald Trump has done on trade, has it succeeded? I have not seen a convincing case that it has. I've seen many, many convincing cases that it hasn't and that it's been near disastrous, many of them authored by Scott Lincecum. But it seems to me that the burden is on them, unless they're making a purely political argument, and you know they're politicians after all, many of them, that this is the way that we can win votes, irrespective of whether it's effective policy, then they need to explain why they've, in some cases, flipped. Because I'm going to trust the, the sort of principles and the arguments of Adam Smith in several centuries more than I'm going to trust somebody who wants to run for president making new arguments based on what he's seen from Donald Trump over the past five years. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor today, Acton Line Podcast. Acton Line is the flagship podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, dedicated to the promotion of a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. With episodes released every Wednesday, Acton Line brings together writers, economists, religious leaders, thinkers, journalists, newsmakers, and more in conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics. 
By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish, but also that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. To subscribe to Act in Line, visit actin.org slash dispatch or search Act in Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or where fine podcasts are available. That's actin.org slash dispatch to subscribe. And with that, we will move to our next topic. <laughs> so uh, about five minutes ago, the Georgia Secretary of State announced that there will be a full recount of every vote in Georgia, and it will be done by hand. This is interesting for a variety of reasons, and uh, I would like to talk about some of them, because what we've seen is the Trump campaign filed numerous lawsuits, just throwing a lot of stuff against the wall in these states. And David, you and I are going to go and really dissect this on advisory opinions tomorrow in all of these cases. But I just want to do the briefest of overviews of some of those cases, but really talk about voter fraud, you know, qua voter fraud, if you will. So the, the three main ways one could commit voter fraud, I'm not aware of any others, are you can add ballots, you can change existing ballots, or you can hack the machines that count the ballots, causing them to miscount the ballots in a way that you want. Uh, What's interesting about Georgia is that they have um, paper ballots for every vote that is cast on a machine. It creates a little receipt. And so they are taking out machines entirely. So they're getting rid of the third problem, which I think will be helpful for folks. There's a lot of conspiracies out there that like these machines were just, um, you know, flipping Trump votes to Biden votes in Michigan, for instance. And there is no evidence of that. The glitch, quote unquote, that was found in the machines in Michigan was actually found before any of the votes were reported, for instance, uh, and fixed. So David, the Pennsylvania lawsuit And there's a reason we've spent so much time concentrating on Pennsylvania and why the Trump campaign is spending so much time concentrating on Pennsylvania, because there is no path to reverse the results of this election that doesn't run through Pennsylvania at this point. And so they have challenged 600,000 or so ballots. And my understanding is that the challenges really fall in a few buckets. Um, One, late arriving ballots, ballots that arrived after election day. While we don't have an exact count, the number is probably around, um, you know, between 1,000 and 5,000 ballots. That will not be nearly enough, even if they throw them all out, cast them into the pit, burn them, etc. Zero effect. Um, Two, that their observers were not allowed close enough that they were kept 13 feet away instead of six feet away. Um, And then, but that's not an allegation that there's any fraudulent votes. Right. And then third, that... um, But isn't the insinuation that Trump wants people to have is that by being 13 feet away, the the close-up magic masters of the the counters could flip, do something bad? Yes, but in order to do that, you could now go through all of the absentee envelopes that were separated from their ballots. And you could find ones that you, for instance, don't think have signature matches or um, weren't signed at all or had a wrong postmark. 
that would be an allegation of a ballot that shouldn't have been separated from its envelope and counted. But they haven't done any of that. So mm-hmm. it's just that they weren't close enough. Well, that in and of itself is not particularly interesting. Um, and the last thing, David, is this idea that some counties were encouraging voters to come fix their absentee ballots or that their absentee ballots had been rejected, so encouraging them to come vote in person, and other counties were not. That's probably the the most interesting one. Although, again, when you look at the actual numbers that this affected, um, it looks very, very small, like 100 to 1,000, not very many. David, am I missing anything on the litigation side? Well, there's this new Detroit case or this new case filed in Michigan. That Mind is, you, Michigan that has 148,000 ballot difference. So please tell me what lawsuit could possibly overturn 148,000 ballots. Also, New Detroit was the city in RoboCop. I just want to point out <laughs> you said New, new Detroit. So essentially what this what this Michigan case did is, uh, is attach a bunch of affidavits from people saying, well, I saw something that didn't look quite right. And so uh, what they're trying to say is that because we've sort of created a cloud of uh, we've we've sent enough, we've sort of thrown enough affidavits in your way saying there, this or that seemed not quite right, or maybe the secrecy, I saw somebody not respecting the secrecy of the ballot here, or I saw, you know, a, a improper curing there, that we now cannot certify this election. And that what you have to have is, an, and this is the request for relief, an independent and nonpartisan audit of the entire election and a TRO prohibiting the defendants from certifying the election results. So, what we have here, I, I think, Sarah, is um, an interesting, uh, that's a charitable word. It's a, very, it's a very interesting tactic in which essentially what you're doing is you're taking in the, in the Michigan case, you're essentially taking sort of conservative media versions of evidence of vote fraud, trying to throw enough of them into affidavits that then create sort of a cloud of suspicion and then you go for maximum levels of relief. Um, so, for example, if you're, if, if you know, in the Pennsylvania situation, what you have are as you as you walk through, um, I believe it's less. It's around ten thousand ballots that were came in, uh, you know, in the three day period that was permitted by Pennsylvania courts, uh, and they had already been segregated. They weren't. They aren't even in this. They aren't even in this uh, 45,000 or so vote gap. And they're saying, well, because of this other 10K ballots that doesn't bear on the 45,000, then what we have to do is we have to prohibit you from certifying the results of the election. Or because of curing differences, the Secretary of State permitted um, local election officials to cure, to allow voters an opportunity to cure defects in their mail-in ballots. Well, because some people did it and some people didn't, even though the numbers are small, we want to we want to delay certification of the whole thing. And that's where I think some of this gets frivolous, actually, because it's one thing to say, hey, there's a problem with one county allowing a cure and another county allowing a cure. That's it. That's an actual issue. Um, but then to then say you can't certify the election when we have no evidence that those numbers were at all relevant to the ultimate outcome of the election, that's when you're going way, way too far. If you have, for example, individuals who say in, in Michigan, I saw something that impact might have impacted a handful of votes, 
and therefore we're going to block certification of a race where the gap was well over 150,000 or around 150,000. That's where they're gra- they're reaching and grasping so far beyond the evidence. Asking a court to stop the certification of an election is a big deal. It is not a small deal. It is not a oh well, no harm done. Let's just not certify this this election. No, that's a big deal, and you got to come forward with big evidence to justify the big deal. I don't I don't know if that's the actual legal doctrine, <laughs> Sarah. Big evidence to justify the big deal. And it's just not there. It's just not there. But what you do have are lawsuits asking for this big remedy. And so what that does is it gives sort of the political argument fuel. It says, hey, we have these big lawsuits. And I think it's very interesting that they went to um, Pennsylvania. So you have Pennsylvania, you have the hand recount in Georgia, and you have Michigan. Michigan isn't going anywhere. It's a big gap. It's a big gap. But even if the even if you're going to win in Pennsylvania, which you're not, and even if the hand recount was to reverse course in Georgia, which it would shock me if it did, you know what? Trump still loses. I mean, that's how that's how wide, you know, that's how extensive his loss was. This isn't Bush v. Gore in Florida in 2000 where if you flip Pennsylvania, you know, if you flip Florida, the election changes, or if you flip Pennsylvania, the election changes. No, you gotta, you gotta keep on flipping, and that, that's what makes this so tough to deal with. From a, I mean, for from Trump's standpoint. Yeah. So there's like a practical reality here that is um, uh, confusing me. I hear a lot of Republicans, including several that were generous with their time at our What's Next event to be interviewed, who sort of keep repeating this very vague, like, well, I want all legal votes to be counted. Uh, What's the end game here? What do they need to see to call this? Is it the secretaries of state certifying the elections? Because, okay, fair enough. I'm happy to wait for that as long as when the Pennsylvania secretary of state certifies the election in their state for Joe Biden, that Mitch McConnell and everyone else will come out and congratulate Joe Biden, president-elect. But I'm not hearing any Republicans set their own standard for when this thing is done, except when Donald Trump says it's done, and that's not an acceptable standard for me. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. So let me give the most charitable explanation for what Mitch McConnell and and others are doing. I think if you're Mitch McConnell and you want, first of all, you want to win the the two seats in Georgia. It's always something. on January 5th, right? <laughs> you want to win that and you want to, you want to stay, uh, sentiment. Now, instead of, but Gorsuch, and, it's, but Purdue. And yes. And, and you, you need the enthusiasm of the Republican base and you worry that the Republican base won't be that enthusiastic if Donald Trump is the, is the loser and potentially put at risk those two seats. I think that's part of it. I don't think that's all of it. The, the most charitable explanation is they look and they see the president raising these questions. Um, they see the president's hardcore followers wanting to believe that the president is right about raising these questions. And rather than jump in and make, I think, the sort of obvious points that you've made, that, that David made, that th- this gap is significantly greater than the, the gap with which Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton. Um, there are 
very few substantive serious questions about this. You can't produce much evidence. Therefore, Joe Biden is the president-elect. We need to move forward. The reason they're not saying that is because they believe that if you put this through this process, and you hear them constantly talk about process, it's got to go through the process. They don't, you're right, Sarah, they don't identify the the point or the, the time at which that process ends but it's important to go to the process. They will say it's important to go through the process so that you can show the Trump, the president's supporters that it went through the process, that it was looked at carefully, that it's legitimate election, and then you can move on. I think the flaw in that logic is that assumes that at some point the president decides it's time to move on and that then therefore his his followers will will go with him. Or that if the president does it, they will believe people like Mitch McConnell that now it's time to move on. Look, they're not believing the the, the Republican commissioner uh, in Philadelphia who said basically there's nothing wrong. The secretary of state of Georgia before being pressured to do this hand recount said, I see no evidence that that there's been systemic or widespread fraud or irregularities. Um, now he's he's, I think, succumbed to this pressure and has has done this this hand recount. But and the president has attacked that Republican be... commissioner in Philadelphia, by the way, correct, which I think is correct. worth noting, because that's what I think a lot of these people are actually afraid of. A right. tweet. So two quick points, two quick points before I before I quit. One, uh, John McCormick, my former colleague at, at the Weekly Standard, points out in light of this, he points to a 538 study on on the success of recounts and, and says over the course of 27 statewide recounts, the vote margin changed on average by 282 votes with a median of 219. The biggest swing came in Florida's 2000 presidential election recount when Al Gore cut 1,247 votes off of George W. Bush's lead. So the lead is 14,000 in, in Georgia. This is not going to change that. Um, second and final point, you, you look at what the, the Trump, they're, they're having this fight on two different levels. They're, they're having the legal fight, um, pushing this through the courts, and they're struggling for the reasons that David lays out. There's just not much evidence of this. They're having a broader political fight, and I think they're having much greater success on the political front. You know, Steve Bannon, when he was asked about this, said, when you're faced with a, a battle with the media, you flood the zone with shit. And that's mm -hmm. what they're doing. There's this story uh, that's unfolded over the past couple of days about this postal service worker named Richard Hopkins, who claimed that he heard, he overheard his bosses talking about the need to systematically backdate postmarks to November 3rd so that late arriving ballots looked like they had come in on time and then could be counted. Well, he made this claim. It was a Project Veritas video. First, they blacked him out and, and kept him anonymous. Then he later put his name to it, and they, they released another video with him talking about this. He was called before the U.S. Postal Service Inspector General. He was interviewed about the process. He recanted the whole thing, said, I made it all up. Um, he, after a Washington Post story about the fact that he had recanted whole, the whole thing, he had said, I did not recant the whole thing. Uh, so he's now claiming after the president, look, this was, this incident was in a memo that was sent to attorney general, Bob Barr to look into voting irregularities and potential fraud. It was put out by Kaylee McEnany, the white house spokesman by Lindsey Graham, by Trump family members, president Trump tweeted about it, gave this guy tons of visibility. It sounded like it might result in a, he said, he said, and we would never really know that what, what happened. Fortunately, some very good reporters at the, I want to make sure I get the, the newspaper right, at the Erie uh, Times, goerie.com, went and actually reported out what had happened. 
And they found that there were precisely two votes with a November 3rd date on them. So not two votes that had been backdated to November 3rd, but two postmarks at all. This is not widespread fraud. This is an attempt to do exactly what David said, to throw out a bunch of specific cases to make it sound like there's fraud everywhere. And look at these brave whistleblowers coming out. They're full of shit. That's what they're doing here. This is the Steve Bannon strategy. I think it's working politically. If you judge from the morning consult poll and other indications, you know, Trump voters are Trump supporters are exercised about this. And I think that could do tremendous damage to the legitimacy of this election. And it's why this is so incredibly irresponsible of Trump supporters, the president himself, and his amplifiers in conservative media. Jonah. So I don't think I've said anything I know, yet. but I have a question um, for you. Yes, hit me with one. My question for you is, do the- 42. F- <laughs> the answer to the meaning of life, obviously. <laughs> Do the Trump supporters have some point when they say that it's hypocritical to attack them for wanting this process and for pointing out all this fraud when everyone was eating it up when Stacey Abrams said she didn't lose the Georgia governor's race and everyone was just fine when Hillary Clinton said she didn't really lose the 2016 election because Russia influenced the vote, which she said without evidence at the time. Um, You know, is this you know, the the media putting their thumb on the scale against the Trump folks because they're Trump folks when they were just fine with it when Democrats did it. Okay. Yes, but um, this is this is the kind of thing that has so obsessed me for the last four or five years that people move away from me on public buses. That's not why they do that, Jonah. Um, That's well, one of the reasons why they move away from me on public buses. Um, look, one of the defining features of this era on the right has been to point out the hypocrisy of the left while being hypocritical in doing so, right? If you, you said everybody was fine with what Stacey Abrams said, you said everybody, I know you're just being rhetorical and framing yes. the question, but everybody was fine with what Stacey Abrams said. Everybody was fine with, with Hillary, what Hillary Clinton said. That's true if you're talking about the mainstream media and the Democratic Party for the most part. The people it's not true of are conservatives, Republicans, yep. Fox News hosts, Fox News guests, Fox News anchors, Fox News reporters, uh, Rush Limbaugh, all the way down. We have been mocking and ridiculing Stacey Abrams for claiming that the election was stolen from her without providing evidence for years. And we've said this is very dangerous. Lots of us to one extent or another, I mean, it's a little more complicated, have criticized Hillary Clinton for her constant, you know, sort of, I mean, she, she's such a moving target about why she lost the election. I mean, it's, it's going to get to underpants gnomes at some point. But, you know, she got received enormous criticism, particularly from all those people on the right that I just mentioned, for con- not letting go of the Russia stuff. And so you, if you're going to say that if, if, so the, 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 if you scratch beneath the surface of this, basically this position, we heard Britt Hume do some of this last night on Fox News. If it was terrible for that they did it, and I said it was terrible when they did it, and now we're doing it, and the other side has no right to judge us because they did it, <laughs> so now we can do it too. I mean, this is, a, this is as fundamentally a two wrongs make a right 
situation as you can get. We are the conservatives are embracing a position they said was was dangerous and illegitimate and immoral and wrong to own the libs, and it's pure whataboutism. And um, I'm perfectly happy to condemn both. Donald Trump is trying to steal the election by accusing the Democrats of trying to steal the election. Stacey Abrams did was outrageous. Um, and just one last point on this, on, um, on this sort of hide the, you know, on, on the, the BSery, cause I know David wants to get into the media stuff on this as well. Um, there was a piece in the Arizona Republic this morning. I don't know if you guys saw it where Trump's lawyers, uh, wanted to have the evidence in their case sealed. And the state's lawyers were like, no, 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 no. Normally we'd be fine with sealing it. That's what we do in these voter fraud things because there's voter data information, blah, 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 blah. But we think there's a public interest right. There's a public interest necessity for the people to know just how unbelievably flimsy Trump's legal case was because they're undermining the case. Of the, and the judge said, you're right. So we're just going to release it because the evidence was all hot garbage. And, um, and so the only question I have for you guys on the factual matter, I hear it a lot. Maybe I've heard it from one of you guys. Is it still true that if they won all of their cases, it's still the results still wouldn't overturn the election? Well, if they got their remedy, um, you know, in one of the Pennsylvania ones, they want to throw out 600,000 ballots. So, I, yeah, okay, okay right, well, well sure. I- <laughs> but even so, even if they did that, right, you, you still have even to if overturn they threw- Arizona or Nevada, right? Right. That's correct. And that's not going to happen. Now- no, that's not going to happen. So you could over, you could, you could get the impossible remedy in Pennsylvania, and really, what they're going for is no certification. But you could get the impossible remedy in Pennsylvania, and Trump still loses. Right. He still loses because Pennsylvania isn't a tipping point state. Like uh, it's not like Florida two thousand. So that's what you know. We really are watching the flood the zone with shit. Um you know, reality play out in front of our eyes. And a quick break to hear from our sponsor, ExpressVPN. Have you ever wondered why internet access is so much cheaper these days? Like 30 to 40 bucks a month? It's because internet service providers like Comcast or AT&T aren't just making money off subscription fees. They're also making money from spying on your internet activity and selling your history and data to big tech companies. So what's the best way to make sure that 100% of your data is encrypted and that your internet provider can't get a hold of it? You guessed it, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure tunnel between all your devices and the internet so that everything you do online is encrypted. It reroutes your connection through a secure server. This blocks your internet provider from seeing everything that you do online. All they can see is that you're connected to an ExpressVPN server, but nothing beyond that. And it's not just your phone or computer. ExpressVPN works on all your devices. It works on your tablets, smart TVs, even your router, so your entire family can always stay protected. I can't stress this enough. ExpressVPN is so simple to use. You just open up the app, tap one button to connect. That's it. Your data is your business. Protect it at expressvpn.com slash freedom. Visit expressvpn.com slash freedom to get three extra months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's expressvpn.com slash freedom to learn more. All right, David. Last topic, speaking of conservative media, hit us. Yeah, okay. 
So I'm starting to wonder uh, what what as I'm watching conservative media right now, and not everybody. Okay, there there are good reporters out there. So if you're sitting there and you're listening and you're like a good reporter, saying, "How dare you, David? I'm a good reporter." Just presume if you're a good reporter, I'm not talking to you. Okay, but at some point, you know what we're watching here, in in is as Jonah said, is something much more akin to watching a sleazy ambulance chaser pound the table on the on the on the part of his client in it some it, it becomes intentionally deceptive it becomes pure advocacy on the part of a, a of a presidential candidate and on part of a president and it feels to me like the chickens are finally coming home to roost in what in the sense of we're now fully seeing laid bare in this condensed symbol of the election contest what the vast bulk of conservative media has become and it, what it has become is are, are essentially the low rent lawyers of the Donald Trump movement and that's what we're watching we're watching the low rent lawyers of the Donald Trump movement flood the zone with the misinformation and doing it in a way i mean Jonah's what about is in point is is great except that you know if you're going to go full what aboutism the Hillary the 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 Obama administration participated in the transfer of power there was a meeting with Obama right after the election a couple of days after the election uh, so what what conservative media is doing is saying, look at what the Democrats did, and then it's okay for us to do worse, not just the same, but worse. And I don't know what my question is beyond a rant, <laughs> but we're here, Sarah. For am I wrong, Sarah? Tell me. Yeah, I just this is the part where I just get incredibly frustrated and turn off Twitter and go read a nice book on fungus, you know? Um, <laughs> and I actually really mean that. So, you know, pass from me. It makes me too angry. Steve? <laughs> um, no, I think David makes a, a really good point. And, and this is, uh, you know, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. It's one thing for a political operative like Steve Bannon, who, you know, once was a, a media figure when he ran Breitbart. It's one thing for a political person to, um, you know, make, uh, to spin reality for political advantage. We've seen that forever. I think it's something altogether different when that person just flat out lies, which we've seen, you know, repeatedly ad nauseum over the past five years at a different level. It's different. But it's altogether different and even more discouraging when you see just baseless claims, sometimes knowing falsehoods amplified and promoted to an unsuspecting public. I yeah. mean, I think the, the real tragedy of this is, let's say, you, you know, you live in, we won't, we, everybody always picks the Midwest when they want to use, uh, when they want to do an example. Let's say you live in Colorado and you have a real job that requires you to work 60 hours a week, but you want to be an informed citizen. You tend to lean to the center right. You want to know what's going on. So you flip on Fox or you sit down and read, you know, any of a number of these conservative sites. And what you're hearing 
sometimes contradicted by other people at those same sources, is this election was stolen. You know, you see Newt Gingrich on Fox News saying this election was stolen, or you see Sean Hannity um, sort of doling out one after another after another of these claims. And as we have done it at the dispatch, uh, working tirelessly with the fact checkers that we had on this podcast last Friday, knocking down one after another after another, these just false claims. And again, this is not a matter of interpretation. It's not like the stuff that we're talking about. Al, somebody could look at it this way. Somebody could look at it this way. No, this, these are things that are false, demonstrably false, provably untrue being amplified and broadcast. If you're that news consumer in Colorado, how the hell do you know what you should believe? Yeah. And you don't know. And I think that makes it so challenging. It's why I don't necessarily fault the people. Now, of course, you know, the, 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 the journalism professor wannabe in me says, well, you should have a varied news diet and you should get your information from a wide variety of sources and judge them against one another. Fair enough. But people, normal people with lives to, that don't involve doing what we do, don't have the time to do that. They, they can't go to 12 different sources and make these judgments and try to make a determination about what's true or not. And I think that's what's really frustrating is here. You have good people who are patriotic citizens, want to keep up with the news, conscientious news consumers, and they have no idea what the hell to believe. And that's really, I think, frustrating. Jonah, last word to you. So I'm going to go back to where I was before. I think the real problem is that people are following politics like it's a form of entertainment. I wrote about written about this at great length it's, it's a big part of my argument in my book um and when you follow things as forms of entertainment weird things happen to your brain you no longer uh you, you, that's work how the best way for confirmation bias to seep in is when you've got a preconceived narrative in your head and then you can throw out any facts that contradict it and every fact that comes in, it's very hard for you to figure out how much weight you should give it, which is one of the brilliant things about all of these anecdotes that people are throwing around because the anecdotes, our brains are wired to hear things in stories. So an anecdote that affects actually two votes gets vastly more weight than the statistical argument that seems abstract that is actually more true. And, um, and while you know, Steve mentioned earlier that the argument here is about how we're bringing along, you know, the Republican Party was, you know, we're just, we just need to bring along Trump's voters and prove to them that it's going to be OK and that we exhausted all the things and blah, 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 blah. I get that argument. I think it's also a lot of self-delusion going on there. Um, a lot of the media industrial complex on the right wants this story to be true because it's a good story, not because it's true. And um, we're going to see this narrative live on and the, and and Trump needs it to be believed by his biggest fans because he can't accept the idea that he lost. So it's, we're bending an entire party and an entire country and, and basically um, our political health to the narcissistic, narcissistic needs and business model of one man. And um, the idea that these senators are at the end of this process going to say, okay, we ran through it all. Congratulations, President Biden, you know, blah, 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 without getting beaten up by the people that they've helped convince that the election was stolen, I just think is foolish. I will say on the plus side, there has been some, that morning consult poll really depressed me. The one that said 70 percent of Republicans think it wasn't a free and fair election. There's been some more polling that's since come out and that that pushes back on that and that most Americans now think that Biden did, in fact, win. Um, but 
one of the things that we're just simply going to see in the next four years is, uh, you know, I mean, Mark Levin has already said he's a member of the resistance now. We're going to get an incredible amount of hypocritical, bogus nonsense from a bunch of people on the right who, out of the need for fan service more than anything else, are going to keep alive a birther-like story on a mass scale that the election was stolen. And you're going to have to pay lip service to it. It's going to be one of these things like, was McCarthy right or wrong? You know, that kind of issue that divided the right for 10 years after the McCarthy period, um, if not longer. Uh, that's going to be one of these things is which side are you on? Are you on Trump's side or are you on, you know, Biden's side of an issue that really doesn't have sides? It has a true side and a false side. And it's going to get very annoying for a long time. Okay, well, um, super awesome. Happy times. (laughs) (laughs) Final question to you guys. And I didn't preview this with you ahead of time. So take a moment right now to read my mind and think about what your answer is going to be. Uh, I don't know how y'all feel about the great man theory of history, but we're just going to indulge in some great man theory right now. Scott and I have been watching The Plot Against America, which is based on the Philip Roth novel that um, posits what would have happened if Charles Lindbergh had beaten FDR for the presidency in 1940. Uh, Bad things is the answer, I think. We're not done with it yet, but I'm... I've got my hat on and I think bad things are going to happen when Charles Lindbergh wins the presidency in 1940. So what is that, uh, you know, great man, alternate history that you find interesting to play out in your head? David, I feel like you probably out of all of us have spent the most time playing out alternate history options in your head. Which one do you go back to in your track favorites? Well, I mean, mine are going to be tied to military history. Yeah. Um, okay. So what happens if in the Battle of Princeton in, I believe, 1777, when George Washington comes to the front to rally the Continental troops that are faltering, that a, a musket ball takes him down? Does everything change? Based on what we know now about how the the extraordinary ability of of Washington to both confront the British regulars and maintain his army together and to confront the squabbling Continental Congress and to sort of pull both into the better better angels of their nature (laughs) to forge an army and to forge a government and to forge a republic, I I think things go really bad. Here's another one. What happens if Jefferson Davis does not replace Joseph Johnston with John Bell Hood in uh, resisting Sherman's attack on Atlanta and uh, the worst Union general and one of the lowest figures of the Civil War which is uh, uh, George McClellan wins the election of 1864. That's another hugely important counterfactual. So those are two that I've I've thought about, both tied to critical American military conflicts. Jonah? Um, I, so I have a bunch relating to just what if World War I didn't happen or what if World mm. War I didn't play out the way it happened? Um, you know, uh, and it could be what if, you know, Archduke Ferdinand weren't assassinated. What if um, Woodrow Wilson didn't screw everything up? Um, you know, there's all sorts of ways to do it. But the 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 simple fact is the entire 20th century is a completely different place without World War One. You don't get, at least not in the way it happened, you don't get the Russian Revolution. You don't get the des- You don't get literally the killing off of entire generations of men in various societies. You don't get the 1930s 
hyperinflation. You don't get Adolf Hitler. You don't get World War II. You don't get the Cold War. You don't get NATO. You don't get stuffed crust pizza. I mean, just everything <laughs> goes differently, right? So that's the one I think is most fascinating to play out in your head because you don't get Lenin at Finland Station. I mean, all these things. The one that's sort of more near and dear to our pundit hearts for me is what if uh, Colin Powell, which Bill Clinton was terrified of, had actually run in 1996 for president. Mm. Colin Powell mm. wins, I think. He, he breaks the Democratic Party's lock on the black vote. Um, uh, loses some people to something, you know, some people on the right because he's too moderate and all that kind of stuff. But because he's a military guy, you know, uh, and he's popular, completely shatters the coalition that in, two, in 1996, the Democratic Party was still holding on to big chunks of the FDR coalition. And anyway, so, and then in 2001, let's hold everything else constant. He's just been reelected. And Colin Powell, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, is president of the United States on 9-11. And how does the Iraq war play out? How does the war on terror play out? What does the Republican Party look like? What does the Democratic Party look like? I think it was entirely possible that Powell could have run in 1996. And I think if he run, ran, Clinton would have been a one-term president and Powell would have been the first black president and the first Republican president. So you get no Barack Obama, you get all sorts of things get messed up. And I'm a big believer in great man theory. Um, I think individuals do change history. I have problems with the mythologies about uh, Lindbergh. I'm not a fan of Lindbergh, but I don't think he becomes an American Hitler. But that's another story. <laughs> another story for another time, Steve. <laughs> I mean, those those are those are both interesting. I think Jonah's wrong about stuffed crust pizza. I mean, obviously that would have happened. Um, it was inevitable, um, regardless of the way the history played out there. I mean, I guess both David and Jonah laid out interesting but relatively minor um, potential changes to history. Um, well, except compared, World War One, as compared to what I'm the American Revolution. <laughs> Right. That's the what I'm Civil saying. War. Okay. okay. Relatively, yeah. relatively minor. I mean, not, yeah. I'm not saying they're insignificant. I'm just saying relatively minor compared to the to, to the one that I spend. I mean, I spend way, way, way too much time thinking about this and regaming this and and working different scenarios. What would have happened if the Green Bay Packers had fired Mark McCarthy just a couple of years after they won the 2010 Super Bowl? And recognize that he was holding them back rather than propelling them to greatness. The Packers have had Hall of Fame quarterbacks now for about 30 years. This almost never happens in the history of the NFL. And yet they have two Super Bowls, two Super Bowl victories to show for it. You build a team around a Hall of Fame quarterback. Mike McCarthy had unimaginative play calling and horrible defenses for the last seven, eight years. If you get rid of him earlier, and now the Dallas Cowboys, of course, are seeing this firsthand, which some of us Packer fans could have predicted. If you get rid of Mike McCarthy and bring in an innovative play caller, you know, say in 2012, could the Packers have been the greatest NFL dynasty ever? Guys, I'm so sorry. Mind, I, I mind just, blowing. To, why did you do out. this to did, us, Sarah? Yeah, Steve Brown's teacher talking. Did, I mean, yeah, I, did Steve what? answer the question? I just I blacked blowing. out for the last three minutes. Think about um, how history would be different. So I think a lot about reconstruction and about how the entire country's history would have been different if um, perhaps Lincoln hadn't been assassinated, 
Johnson doesn't become president. Reconstruction goes totally differently. You don't then have the sort of swinging wildly back and forth um, in the South, and perhaps you stave off Jim Crow, and perhaps the the history of race in the 20th century looks totally different. So that is mine. Well, that's um, no Green Bay Packers, but I'm it's I'm no I'm Green I'm Bay Packers. <laughs> Look, and I'm not, unlike Jonah's, I'm not sure that I prevent deep dish pizza in my scenario. So perhaps it's not worthwhile. Stuffed crust pizza. Different than this. Sorry, stuffed crust pizza. <laughs> I've done the math. You can't prevent stuffed crust. I mean, you can't prevent deep dish. Deep dish cannot be prevented. Not that I love deep dish, but it's just every parallel universe leads back to deep dish pizza. It's weird. It's really weird. <laughs> All right. Uh, for everyone who joined us for our What's Next event, on Monday and Tuesday. Thank you again. We had such a great time. And for our podcast listeners who didn't join us, we have all the sessions recorded. They're up on the website, whatsnextevent.com. And we will see you guys again next week. take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe $10,000 or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com dispatch.